God is moving, isn't he? Can we give our worship team a hand? Great job. Thank you, Sean. We, uh, by the end of this day, this will be our eighth service this week. So we've been going. We've been going hard. But it's been so worth it as we've been doing our fast, our annual fast with our Every Nation family, uh, over 80 countries around the world fasting together this, this last week, going through the booklet and the app, the amazing grace, thinking about the grace of God and who he is, and expecting God to move in power. It's been an awesome, awesome week. How many guys, don't be ashamed if you haven't, but how many guys were able to make at least one day this past week? Raise your hand high, yeah, yeah. Awesome, praise the Lord. It's been a great, great time of fasting and prayer together. But it's not just that we do that and then we move on. It is the catalyst to get us moving on. It's the thing that starts the engine so we can go. And so it's been such a great week. I'm thankful um, for all of you that were able to attend. Even if you weren't able to come here, but you were able to attend in some way, we're so thankful. We're going to continue in the message in the series, Amazing Grace, today. Last week, we looked at Romans 5, and we compared and contrasted Adam and what he did in botching and messing everything up, right? There's going to be a line to Adam and Eve, right? Eve, ladies, anybody that had a baby? Oh, that childbirth, it hurts, right? Right? I don't know by experience, but I've seen it three times. You're going to have a line, and you're just going to get to go, Eve, dang it, what the heck? What's wrong with you, right? And, uh, but then we got to look inside and go, yeah, I would have done the same thing. We looked at Adam and all that he did, but then we looked at Christ. And we use this word grace that the Bible uses. We defined it and what it is. Let me give you that definition again in case you aren't here because we have different understanding idea of what grace is. In the Greek, the word is charis. We have a baby charis, don't we? Uh, beautiful name. Uh, charis for in the Greek. And it means that which is given freely and generously. And then we expounded on that a little bit last week that it's so much more than even just something given, like a gift, like Christmas time. That's a grace giving time. You didn't earn those Christmas presents. I mean, maybe you did. Maybe you got coal, but that's Santa Claus. That's not real. Uh, sorry if there's kids in here. It's awesome. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> But you didn't earn that. Even your birthday, you didn't earn that. You were born. In fact, you should probably love your mama on your birthday, right? Because she did the work. So it's grace. It's a gift. But it's so much more than that, what Jesus did. He didn't just gift you salvation or gift you a ticket like Willy Wonka to heaven. He also gave you so much more. And that grace, we said, is also the power to overcome sin in your life and the power to do what God has called you to do right? He doesn't just save you from a bunch of bad things, but he also saves you to a whole new way of living that's so much better. That's the grace of God. Can I get some amens in this place? Come on, college students. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you are paid to say this thing. Come on. My goodness. That grace, a good picture of the grace, I think, is like the, the, the caterpillar and the chrysalis, like the caterpillar wants to fly, wants to be so much more. But get in that chrysalis, and all of a sudden, now he has wings. You weren't just given a gift, right? But you were given a whole new identity, who you are to fly. This is the grace, the charis in the Greek. We're going to look at the Hebrew today because we're going to go a little OT, a little Old Testament today. And the Hebrew word for grace, or one of them, there's several, um, but one of them is chesed. Okay, you got to clear your throat in the Hebrew, and it's C-H. You got to say chesed. Okay, don't spit on your neighbor, but try, practice that. Say chesed. Come on, everybody. You're not too cool for school. Chesed. Okay, got it? Chesed, that's the Hebrew. And it means loving kindness, 
covenant love, everlasting love, steadfast love, also grace. And it, in, it has the same impactful thing, not just a gift, but covenantal everlasting love. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. And we're going to talk about that. Here's a little bit more about this word. Chesed isn't just cheap forgiveness of sin or a disregard for God's laws. It is the gracious forgiveness that comes from love that is so enduring that it persists beyond any sin, always seeking to forgive. You talk about, you say, man, I just want to be free, teenagers or what? I just want to be free. I don't want to be bound by anything. You know what freedom is? Is being able to seek and give forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because you were sought and given that same forgiveness. Here's some examples of chesed. Chesed is a bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail. Chesed is a mom who spends day after thankless day spoon-feeding and wiping up after her disabled child. Chesed is an unsung pastor's wife whose long-suffering, tearful prayers keep her exhausted husband from falling apart at the seams. Thank you, Casey Pate. Chesed is love that can be counted on decade after decade. It's not about, listen to this, it's not about the thrill of romance, but the security of faithfulness. Chesed is so much deeper than just the thrill of romance. Some of you guys and some of us, and we've all had this feeling, I just don't feel loved by God or I don't feel something from something or I don't feel like doing this and we're waiting for this thrill of romance to overcome us to do something and chesed is so much bigger than a thrill of romance. It involves that, but it's steadfast love from security. It's that long awaited love that continues and pursues us. Here's some examples in the Old Testament where we see this word. Isaiah 54.10 says this, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing chesed, love for you, will not be shaken. My love, my grace. The Hebrews when it rains, even today, rain is considered a form of chesed. Especially in an agrarian society 2,000 years ago, and you're dependent on the rain for your crops, which makes you dependent for food, makes you dependent for your resources. It's the rain. God, bring rain. Rain is everything. And when it rains, it's like chesed, love, grace, God reminding us of that grace. Lamentation 3, 31 through 32 says this, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great it is his chesed, unfailing love. One of my favorite, all-time favorite stories about the chesed of God involves a few characters you're probably familiar with. You're familiar with David. Uh, we talk a lot about King David and who he was. Saul was the first king of Israel. And Saul's son, Jonathan, who also had a son named... Anybody know the name? Huh? Good, Mephibosheth. Great. 300 heavenly points to you. 
Love it, Paul. Paul works for NASA, so he's going to know that. Um, Mephibosheth. These kind of, the, the main three, Saul, David, Jonathan, you see a lot. You read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. I would encourage you, great book by Gene Edwards called The Tale of Three Kings. Beautiful book, about 120 pages. You can read it. It really quickly, beautiful, beautiful book. And they talk about tale of three different kings, David, Saul, and Absalom. But in this story, it's, it's really amazing. The children of Israel have judges. That's the book of Judges. They have these judges that are determining different things and judging on behalf of Israel, multiple judges. They don't have a king. And they look like we do to other people and compare ourselves with other people and go, look at that, those people, they have a king. We need a king. And God says, no, 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 you don't need a king. I've got judges and prophets. You're good. You're my people. No, no, no. We want a king. And God warns them, here's what's going to happen if you get a king. You're going to have these taxes and these things are going to happen. No, we want a king. Okay, I'll give you a king. And he anoints Saul. Saul is this really tall, has great stature, looks like a leader, but on the inside, he's a coward and he's afraid. God calls him out and he starts stepping into this leadership. But the bad thing about Saul is he disobeys God. He disobeys God's explicit word, not just a whoops, I messed up, but like explicitly, this is what I want you to do. And he doesn't do it. And God says, I don't know about Saul. And he looks to anoint a different king. And this is David. He anoints this King David, and then y'all know the story. We know the story of David and Goliath. David kills Goliath, which Saul should have, and David did it. And then all these people start shouting, David has killed his tens of thousands, and Saul his thousands. And Saul goes, say what? Excuse me? Do you know who I am? Right? And he gets mad and full of jealousy. He has his son, Saul has his son. As the king, the prince, the next in line, Jonathan. And he's afraid David, with the people, going to usurp his throne and take over. And his jealousy overwhelms him because he wants to see Jonathan and his bloodline continue. We see some of this British, uh, the kings and queens, the things that are happening right now, princes, like just the travail, what's going on right now in our society. This is what's happening there. Now, at the time, it's interesting because Jonathan doesn't have the same jealousy. In fact, he's like best friends with David. And he's talking to David saying, hey, David's like, hey, I think your dad's trying to kill me. He kind of threw a spear at me. This is not going well. I was playing the harp for him, and he got mad, okay? You read the story. The guitar, okay? God likes the guitar. His favorite chord is Jesus. Okay, so here's the deal. Dad jokes. Okay. Jonathan and David are talking, and Jonathan's like, I don't know, let me talk to him. He talks to Saul. He could tell, no, he wants to kill you. They meet out in a field. They plan this thing. And at that field, Jonathan, weeping, says, you got to go, man. I'm here. I'm, I'm with my dad, but I, I love you. You're my friend. You're my best friend. I hate to see this because Jonathan was humble enough to see the call of God on David's life and who he was and say, I'm willing to submit to that. So much so, in that field, they do a covenant together, and they exchange gifts a lot of times when you make covenant, it wasn't just like a contract. I'll sign here, you sign here, and someone breaks it later, especially if they're insurance companies. Now, if you work for an insurance company, I love you. Um, David and Jonathan make this covenant, and what Jonathan does is he takes his robe off and he gives it to David. In other words, saying, I believe you are a rightful king and you are God's man. 
And David hands his sword saying, I will fight for you. Your enemies are my enemies, and my enemies are your enemies. And they make this covenantal chesed covenant with one another to say, my people are yours, your people are mine. We are bound together. We are brothers together. Now, that's relevant because later, Saul and Jonathan, Saul starts pursuing David, trying to kill him. If you read throughout the story, David gets away every time, but it takes years, and God's humbling David. And listen, getting all the offense and learn, teaching him how to forgive. So when he is the king one day, he can handle it. Because, see, God will test you not just in your suffering, but mostly in your blessing. What do you do with it? Who's really going to be your Lord, and what are you going to do? And he had already done that with Saul, and Saul failed. So God took David through a lot of humbling season while Saul's trying to kill him. And I don't know their communication with him and Jonathan, but the next thing we know, they have this war with the Philistines. And Saul and Jonathan are on Mount Gilboa, and they both get killed, and all his sons, Jonathan's brothers, get killed. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 4. Four, as we start to catch up with what happened. Check this out. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Now, here's the story. Here's how he became crippled. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that they were dead. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Such a tragic story. The fear they had for their life, because we understand this, when a new regime comes on, people lose their job. When you're dealing with kings, people lose their life. Especially if you're of the old regime or old lineage, like my job, I've got to take you out because you might raise up with people around you and take over. So that would happen constantly back then. We do that today when you got a new professional college coach, college coach or professional NFL coach, they end up having to change all coaches, right? It's like new regime, got to bring new people in and you're sitting there going, am I going to get the ax? Am I going to get the, I got the ax for my job, but they're, they're fearful of their life. So this kid is five years old. The nurse is like, oh my gosh, we found out they're dead. All of your bloodline is dead. We're getting out of here. She trips, boom. You talk about being a victim as a kid, not his fault, not what he thought his destiny would be. And because the actions of somebody else in their haste he became lame. Lame is not like, oh, you're lame, bro. Like, he can't walk, okay, for life. Here's the thing about Mephibosheth. That wasn't his name to start with. In First Chronicles 8.34, the book of Chronicles kind of gives the history of Israel in another way. So you see it a few different ways. And he has a different name. Here's the name, verse 34. The son of Jonathan was Merib Baal. And Mary Baal was the father of Micah. You see it as well. First Chronicles, they, they, this is a different person. You're like, who is this? Verse 40. The son of Jonathan was Mary Baal, and Mary Baal fathered Micah. Here's the thing. When Jonathan, with his wife, had this beautiful baby boy, the Hebrews name very intentionally 
their inhabitants, their children. They're very, very intentional with names because you're gonna be calling them that all the time. It's like, it would be equivalent, like if you named your kid Demon Seed, that would be Demon Seed, come here, it's time to do the trash, Demon Seed. Like, how stupid would that be? You don't wanna do that, that's bad. That's what they're hearing, that's what they're associating themselves with. Listen, his name was Mary Baal, which means this, the adversary or the one opposed to Baal. Baal was a god, was an adversary of the Israel's God, Yahweh. And anybody that worshiped Baal, they had statues, they think people would worship Baal. And I think Jonathan looked down his son and said, you're going to be the one that defeat, like your lineage, your path, who you're going to be. I'm going to raise you to get rid of that God, to get rid of those idols. You're going to be the one. And at five years old, all his family's gone. And he falls and he's lame and they give him a new name, Mephibosheth, which means son of shame. A new name. We know when a name creates identity. That's who I am now. And imagine he's hearing Mephibosheth come here, Mephibosheth, and they're taking care of him. He's lame. He has to have people take care of him constantly. And this is his new life from Marib Baal conqueror of Baal to son of shame, hearing that constantly. A good 10, 15 years later, we pick up 2 Samuel 9, chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. That word kindness, horrible translation in English, sorry. In the Hebrew, it's chesed. It's grace. It's loving kindness. It's long enduring. It's covenantal love. And David says, I know of my God's covenantal love towards me. I've got to show that same thing to somebody else. I'm not like every other ruler that wants to kill. I'm here to bring life. And he says, is there anybody I can show chesed to? Later, he continues, verse two. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And Ziba, they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? Look at this, that I may show the kindness of God in him, not just chesed, but God's chesed to him. Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel at Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar, Debar, interesting enough, means no word the son of shame crippled at his feet because a victim of what someone else has done is in a place called no word, no communication, no pasture, no hope. That's where he lives. Anybody relate to feeling down and out, feeling shame, feeling guilt, feeling like you're not good enough, you're not right? You can relate with Mephibosheth. Verse five, then King David sent 
and brought him from the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. He's seeking, not just saying, I want to help somebody. I'm seeking, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. He fell prostrate in front of him, and he's shaking, you could see. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he's thinking, oh, God, I'm going to die. And he answered, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. You probably see him trembling. For I will show you chesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Listen, not because of you, but because a covenant I made with your father. I made a covenant and I will uphold my covenant. Not because of you and who you are, but because of him. And I will restore to you, listen to this, all the land of Saul, your father. That was a lot of land. He was a king. This dude hit the jackpot, hit the lottery, and you shall eat at my table always. Not only am I going to restore to you this and give you your land resources, you became a millionaire overnight, but I'm going to have you at my table, which means this in the the Jewish culture, you're going to be like a son to me. You get my inheritance too. This is Hesed. 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 I'm like, this is Hesed. Hesed. Listen, it's not just, hey, I want to help you. Peace out. Like, here's some money. But no, I'm adopting you. Not only do you get that, you get everything that's mine now and my kids. You're a part of my lineage. Why? Because the covenant I made with your father, it was an eternal covenant. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter anything I've done it because of who your father is, not who you are. Verse 8, look at his response. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth, seen his state, his legs, his Lameness, he has nothing to offer the world. Have to have people take care of him in a place where there's no communication, no word. He's in the lowliest of lowest places, scared for his life, his, his whole life, called you're shameful, you're no good, his whole life, that when he gets this, wow, what, this is gonna change everything, he goes, I'm not worthy. And there's two things about this that's, that, that's, that's interesting. One is good in the sense of, yeah, that's, that's a great place to be because you're, you're not. This isn't based on you. This is based on somebody else. But the second part is the part most of us struggle through when we think about the grace of God and what God has done is, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm no good, but learning how to go, but. But I can receive because it's such a great promise and covenant. He's promising not you're just going to be taken care of, but you're going to be a new person. And he doesn't get it, and he literally can't get it. Verse 9, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. They're saying, David's going, I don't think he really fully gets it, and he's not going to be able to do this on his own. He needs a helper. He needs people to counsel him and help him in order to grasp what it is that he's getting and literally take him from where he is to another place. He needs a helper. Anybody getting types and shadows? 
And he says, Ziba, you're going to have to do this. And he says, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. You're going to work for him. You're going to work it. You're going to do it. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. You make sure he gets to my table because he's my son. And I'm going to beat it into him in a good way. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. You talk about hitting the lottery. You know who, just, who else just got the grace, the chesed? Ziba's like, man, I'm glad I've been serving this person. Imagine Ziba's life, serving him, protecting him like secret service, like, like trying to help him and, and do everything for him their whole life and just giving and giving and giving and God drops in their lap and their lineage and their family, all of these people now also are blessed with this land. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. I got this, right? Sure. This is great. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, as we saw earlier in First Chronicles. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And it reminds you, now he was lame in both his feet. We can 100% relate, everybody in this room, I don't know what your background is, especially whatever level, level one to level 10, you've been victimized. And we're all victims of sin, victims of our fathers and their fathers and their mother and the way you grew up, whether it's financially, educationally, societally, whatever it is, we all can relate to some extent. But imagine being like this man where you have this call of God to destroy all of your enemies and all of a sudden one act from somebody else destroys your life, changes your very identity and even your name. Changes your place, your residence, where you're stationed in life and someone comes along and says, you're no longer that you're this. And not only are you not just that, you're this and more. You're a king's kid. You're not a son of shame. You're a son of the king. See, this is the perfect image of amazing grace, the chesed of God. What God has done in Christ Jesus for us. And David being a Christ type, a Jesus type, or shadow, but it's still just small potatoes compared to what Jesus has done. But look at David's kindness. He could have killed him. He said, no, I'm going to bring him in. It's going to cost him money and time and sacrifice and people, and yet he still did it. Why? Because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. It's a beautiful picture. Not only did he cross socioeconomic bounds to come, as a king to this lowly, lame person who can't offer anything to society right now. But he also crossed tribal bounds. I look around this room and I see different colors, different ethnicities, and the beauty. I think this is what heaven looks like. And this is a picture of that because, see, Mephibosheth 
Saul, Jonathan, they're of the tribe Benjamin, a different tribe altogether with different ways and certain things. And David is of the tribe of Judah. So he even crosses tribal boundaries to say, no, you're mine. And I love looking around this room and going, I don't have a ton in common maybe with you or you or your culture, but I value your culture and I love your culture because one thing we have in common, it's the same king that saved you from your stuff and my stuff has brought us both at his table to be sons and daughters of God. That is the greatest thing we can have in common. And now we can celebrate our cultural differences, not make them divide us because we're of the same line now. We're of the same tree now. We have the blood of Jesus running through our veins, not just the blood of our ancestors. And that is so much greater, binds us so much closer, and the only thing that will truly bring unity to ourselves to our churches, to our nation. It's Jesus and what he's done in the revelation. But see, just like Mephibosheth, it's hard for us to embrace that and to say, yeah, that's me. I, I got it because he's going, I'm just a dead dog and he has to have a helper. He has to have people like Ziba and their servants to come and say, I'm gonna start doing this work for you and I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna place you in front of the table. And that's what Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to do for us. He's our helper. He's our counselor. He's the one going, no, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. This is who you are. Because if you don't believe it, you'll continue to walk in shame, not as a conqueror. I love that First Chronicles doesn't call him Mephibosheth. Calls him Mary Baal. This is his real name. He's a conqueror now. Not because he's great, because as it ends, now he was lame in both feet. See, he still struggled. He still had weaknesses, but he had helpers and he had people. And I think he slowly started to believe, I'm a son of God. The amazing grace, that covenantal thing that I didn't earn but was given to me, started to change his very identity all the way to the point of getting his name and identity back. See, that's what the grace of God does. It's not just saying, be better, do better, be smarter, stop cussing, stop drinking, stop doing these things. See, because that's just rules and regulation. But he says, no, relationally, I'm going to set you at the seat. You might not feel like it. I imagine Mephibosheth is like sitting at the table and like, this is weird. I don't know how to feel. This is not me. This hasn't been my life. I'm a son of shame. I'm a dead dog. And every day, you know, this is who probably started to believe it as it was getting pushed into his head. And see, David, what an amazing thing and example David is, but Jesus is so much greater. For example, David was humbled by God and received his crowning as a king. But Jesus humbled himself to God and received our rags and our shame. David, as a king, sent his messenger for Mephibosheth and brought him to his palace to restore him to his royal status. But Jesus came to us and lived among us as poor carpenter and servant and through his death restored us to our royal status. David commanded others to take care of Mephibosheth's needs and land and Jesus, listen, just didn't say somebody else, but took on our sin, took on, the Bible says he became sin our shame, our weaknesses himself, and dealt with them on our behalf. So we started last week in the book of Titus, chapter 3, that says this. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, the buts in the Bible are awesome. Quote me, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, according to his covenant that he made with his Father and fulfilled by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit when he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his chesed, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we say amen, we leave, we say yeah, but then we go, I don't know if I can fully grasp that. How do I live that out? And I'm here to say, it's not easy because everything else around us wants to say, you're shameful, you're no good. Maybe you do something wrong and people will remind you, you're no good. And then you get quiet and I don't wanna be quiet because it just creeps up and tells me I'm no good and I'm condemned and I feel that. So I need to distract myself with everything under the sun. And God says, when you receive me, you receive my inheritance. And the only way, guys, I know how to help you and tell you how to do this is you literally have to look at the truth of what your heart says, this is how I feel, and you've got to beat it down with the truth of the Word of God. This is reality. What Jesus has done is greater than how I feel. And His covenant love, His act is so much greater. I'm beating it down. And so I, when I start to believe, listen, here's what happens. When you slowly start to believe, like the Matrix and Neo, you start stopping bullets. You start walking. You start doing it. But if you never think it's true and it can't be about you, you're never going to do the works of God and just continue in condemnation. I know this. Every week, I've got to get up in front of all of you and preach a message. Some of this, this is your worst nightmare, public speaking. I get it. I have fear still to this day. I never want to approach this and go, dude, I got this. I've been doing this 20 years. I go, Lord, anoint my eyes, my mouth, my hands, my feet for your service every day. And this act of service is no greater than serving back there with the kids. But we all have that. And I can make my identity you if I get some amens and head nods. People come to the front. People show up. I feel really good. Nobody shows up. I'm going, I'm a horrible person. Anybody else feel like that in your job? But see, that's the problem. We say our ability precedes our identity, and it's not true. The way I beat that down is I go, this is how I feel, but what is truth? I wrote, I'm going to say it quickly, a spoken word about this a few years ago as I was thinking my thoughts through. Because I look around the room and some of you guys are muy inteligente. And you love the Greek and you love the Hebrew. You're like, do some Aramaic, bro. And I'm like, ah. And so if I don't, you're going, that sermon wasn't very good. I didn't get a lot out of that. And then some of you that are going, I don't really care about that stuff. Just inspire me. I didn't leave very inspired. And so I feel this tension and pull every week. Because there's different levels of different people and different cultures in this room. It's hard. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but that's my plight. So I wrote this. It's called The Plight of the Preacher. I've got to be relatable, but theological. Whimsical, but thoughtful. 
applicable without the bull and able to challenge without being judgmental. Perfect yet vulnerable, it seems so fictional. I feel too full struggling through the thoughts in my own school. Where do I go to escape the waves of thoughts and expectations as they gaze upon this message? I've been living for days, sleepless and tossing, trying and toiling the perfect way to express what so many try to convey to their own dismay. The crowds just want it their way right away. How do I make it through the day? How did you make it through the day, Jesus? Oh, wait. You didn't. You were scorned and questioned by the unrepentant. Yet you finished the race in my place by seeking his face and not the ways of the crowds and their taste. They need what they don't want, and you delivered up front the message not heeded or heard. They denied the living word. You know pain. You know loss, and you endured it on that cross to become the boss of the living and the dead, the fleeing and the led. So how can I complain when I end prayers with your name and proclaim to know the only way to go is the thing, even if it costs me? My life, I will stick it out throughout the drought of confusion and frustration that comes with this station you've given me to hold, to be strong, to be bold, no matter the response, no matter the cost. But God, I'm here and you're there. No, wait, you're here, there and everywhere with me and in me, empowering to give me your spirit and truth to preach and rebuke myself and those with you and I'll never quit till I'm through because my hope is in you. The only way I know to beat down the shame is pay attention to your heart and then beat it with the truth. This is what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, but that's not who I am been placed ultimately, God says in his word, at the table of the king. Let's pray. Father, I love you, God. Thank you for your message of grace. God, let us go from head to heart, from simply knowing to believing to trusting until walking out 